Welcome to Transformed by Grief, a call-in show to help you find a way forward while coping with loss. Brought to you by Funeral Radio. And now your host, Diane Gray. Good evening, everyone. This is Diane Gray. I'm happy to have you join us. Absolutely happy as can be to have as our guest tonight, Alicia Coppola, who is um, just one of the kindest, funniest people I know. Alicia, tell us, you know, where are you? And I didn't read your bio to everyone yet. Um, Tell us a little bit about what you're doing and tell me about you. Oh, how about me? Well, I can tell you this. I just got back from a wonderful two days in Palm Springs with my daughters. Um, And then, of course, I came home to to speak with you. And everything is going great. On uh, April 13th, uh, which is a Monday, the day after my birthday, because my birthday is the 12th, I am back on NCISLA. And we have uh, We Are Your Friends, which comes out this summer. I'm not exactly sure when. Tell me a little about we a little bit about We Are Your Friends. It's basically about young guys, and you know they're in their mid twenties. They live in the valley, and they all kind of get together to support the one Zach Efron um, in his dream of being a world class DJ. And I can't tell too much of the story, but I can tell you that Mike, through my character, you actually see the heart and the soul of Zach Efron's character, and it all kind of wraps up in the end that this guy that you think is really just you know a young uh, stud player uh, trying to get ahead in the world actually has has um, a, a great soul and a great sense of compassion and a good um, a moral path in his life. So I'm pretty oh, excited well, about I'm it. Sure, yeah, I'm, it sounds like a great film. I can't wait to see it this summer. You know, I want to I get back to something. Um, I, as I was reading your book right after we met, um, it was so amazing to me because you had taken your father's journal and your journal, and really overlapped them. Can you tell everyone a little bit about that? Well, when I began my journal, I I, I don't know if I was aware or unaware. I really don't remember much of the time um, of being aware of my father's writing. Um, but upon his death, my mother handed me this manila envelope, and in it was this journal that my father had had from 83. He, I guess he wrote it retrospectively from 83 when he went through his remission all the way back to 1980 when he was diagnosed. And I had had a journal that I kept from, I guess, you know, May, June of 1990 when I graduated from NYU until, you know, a little bit after my father's death. And I didn't know what to do with it. I knew I had something, um, but I didn't know what it was. And honestly, it it took a girlfriend of mine named Diane Farr, and um, during my pregnancies, she would kind of come over and go, "Okay, well, let, let, let's you know, let's just maybe try this as a chapter. That try this as a chapter. Let's kind of splice them." You know, it, it it took me a long time, but she would put me on the journey of how to not only edit myself, but how to uh, make a follow through from my father's words to my words so that a reader would be able to take that journey with us 
and know that when my father was speaking, when I was speaking, and that's why I chose to italicize my father's writing so that there wouldn't be any confusion. And I dated mm-hmm. everything so that there wouldn't be any confusion. Um, so initially what, what, what began as a very uh, daunting exercise actually turned out to be quite easy because once I was able to put everything out in front of me, the story kind of told itself. And it's literally like the pieces just kind of moved into the puzzle themselves. It just took me to um, to follow through with it and to guide it along. You, but it pretty much told itself. Right. Do you feel that, you know, I'm thinking about all of the people that I speak with over, you know, the course of a year or several years. And they're asking me, you know, Diane, well, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do to help heal my grief, to help, you know, lighten my heart? Do you feel that the practice of writing and journaling helped you? Well, I can say that my 21-year-old self and my 22-year-old self going into my, I can say when I was on the soap opera, um, after I left the soap in 94, I started again journaling. What it meant to me then was different than what it meant to me a year ago or two years ago when I published the book. Then... It was to keep it alive and to keep my father's memory alive and to to maybe search and see how it happened and why was I the way I am and maybe there were some clues in the writing or clues in my dad's words that could help me kind of let go and move ahead. Um, and at the time, that did that. That solved that for me. Doing it now as an adult woman um, with children of my own, what I found in, pub- in writing and publishing the book was that it allowed me to see my grief. Mm-hmm. Both of us lost our dads when we were, you know, young. I was very young. I was nine. And yeah. how old were you? Uh, Twelve when he was diagnosed. So I, I, I call that the beginning of the loss. And then the, right. ultimate, uh, the ultimate finality was uh, when I was 21. So one of the things that Alicia and I have spoken about is that we would love it if young women had um, a guidebook or a, just a, a source of information. Hey, here's a thing, here are the things that you might go through if you lose your dad as a young adult or a, a young woman or a teenage girl. Alicia, what do you think are some of the things that, you know, you – um, maybe experienced differently in your teen angst years as a result of losing your dad? Well, when I was a teenager, he was <clears throat> still alive, uh, but, you know, ultimately dying. So I can answer that in two different ways. I can say that um, before 12, um, do, you, do you know what they say about alcoholics? And I don't, I don't know this from personal experience, but um, I've been told that they say when a person starts drinking the way that they drink, Mm -hmm. that is the emotional age that they remain. And for for me, the day that my father was diagnosed was the emotion. I'm still a 12-year-old girl inside. I may be a 46-year-old woman on the outside, and I can't believe I just said my age out loud, but I'm still 12. I still walk by a group of girls in the mall, and if they're laughing, I think they're laughing at me. You know, Mm. I... I And so I can say that prior to 12, I was a pretty happy-go-lucky, carefree kid. The day my dad was diagnosed, everything changed for me. 
and you know the hallway stairs became something more um more you know evil than maybe they they were ever meant to be i became very uncomfortable in my skin and especially as a 12 year old girl i mean that's when we're all you know we're going through puberty where we're getting our periods we're growing boobs we're changing our skin's changing everything's changing our hormones are a mess and for me I, I I would say to a young woman, please find somebody, somebody, if it's not your mother, because as we all know, or your father, when a parent is sick, the other parent is pretty much taking care of the ill parent, so the children are primarily collateral damage. I would just, you know, mm-hmm. say to find an older person that you respect, that you can talk to, that you can have an honest conversation about, because I think it's really important during those times to find a mirror um, that is accurate and not what we're projecting, not the grief and the anger that we're, we don't even know how to express, not the sadness that we even know that we're you know, feeling and we can't articulate it, but, but that we can see that that's normal, that, that it's okay to let that out and that we shouldn't twist it and turn it inside of ourselves. And that's, I think, what I did for from 12 really to 21 and of course I was sent away to boarding school so that I wouldn't be any more of a witness to my father's illness and his ultimate demise but even that was difficult because now I was alone I didn't have any no family no nothing I just had 60 sisters pretty much in a dorm and again I, 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 I would befriend the one girl who you know taught me how to use the tampon because I didn't have my mother to teach me how to do that so I really wow. think that finding finding a mentor, finding someone that you can talk to who will reflect back to you who you really are, not what you're feeling. And then I also think um, when I turned 21 and now I was, you know, a young adult female, I had a real hard time trying to find daddy and the boys that I would date. I, I would, you know, I was constantly searching for someone to take over his, my father's job of protecting me, of loving me, of, of, of caring about, you know, where I was every day. And I mm-hmm. can say that although my, my intentions were, 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 um, were good, um, the outcome of that is never going to work. And I think a lot of women, when they lose their daddies, are searching for their father. And you can't. Absolutely. You cannot find your father outside of yourself unless he's your father. Anybody else can just be a male friend, a boyfriend, a husband, uh, you know, a brother. But that's it. Your father is, the father is irreplaceable. Once the father's gone, it's gone. And I think had I had the knowledge of that. But, of course, you know, you were nine. I was 21. How do you have that knowledge? That's what I would like to teach girls. I agree with you. I mean, I think that that's probably the most instrumental piece of any conversation to girls and young women that lose their dads. It's that you'll never find daddy. You can date a lot. You can not date at all. You can, you know, make mistakes. You can, whatever your path is or your journey, you know, you're never going to replace that that person. And, um, you know, I think I probably caught on to that somewhere around 26, 27, that, oh, you know, <laughs> okay, and started making, you know, good choices. And in my case, it wasn't about dating a lot. It was about dating, like, the most stable person I could, you know, who really, I'm an adventurer, you know, 
so it it wasn't really in in a good match in my in my youth but i agree with you completely i think it's um really important what would you tell moms who are parenting daughters um there are a lot of mom, moms out there who listen who have lost their husbands uh for one reason or another and they have daughters what would you say to them I would say very simply, do not hold your children under the water like an inflatable raft to keep yourself up. And I think that that's mm-hmm. what my mother did. I don't think she knew she was doing it, but she mm-hmm. was holding on to us to keep herself afloat, and, but never really talking to us about it. So not only were we left in the dark, but now we're kind of suffocated by her grief and not able to express our own. So I would say mm-hmm. to, to mothers out there, please listen to your children. Please, they are relevant, and they are who is going to remain because your husband's going to leave. And if you don't listen right. to your children now, you may not get that chance again. And yeah, so, very, very interesting. You know, that's, I, I just think that grief is overwhelming, and I saw it with my mother, and my mother was widowed twice. After she married, my, after my father passed away, she remarried another man who, the day of their uh, wedding, was diagnosed with acute myelitic lymphoma. So me, oh, wow. I would have run for the, I would have run for the damn hills. But no, she <laughs> went right into the storm, you know. And I ended up, you know, pulling the plug on his respirator because, you know, that was my job because that's what I did. I was going to say, let's talk about that because. You feel, um, based on earlier conversation that you and I have had, you you told me something that was I, I found amazing, that, and that's that you feel a calling. You feel that the grief and the loss of your father has taught you some very important things. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because this show really is about the transformational process, and then we're going to take a caller in just a minute. So go ahead. Yeah. Well, I can say this um, through through, um, and it's it's going to sound weird, Diane. So I don't want people to think like I'm 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 nutty. I mean, I am. You know me. I'm crazy as a loon, but not that crazy. But um, I, when my father died, I felt like I was able to somehow um, be a guide for him to go home. When my grandmother took ill a few years later, I remember putting my hands on her and saying, "It's okay. You can go." You can go now and mm-hmm. see Daddy, who's, you know, her, her son. And then she died. And then my Nana died. And then my father remarried, and he died. And, uh, of course, then my grandparents, you know, my, my grandfathers went. But just recently I had the great, great pleasure of um, going to the hospital in New York to sit with my aunt, who was my mother's best friend for 53 years. And their family, you know, allowed me to come because I was very close with my aunt. And they did not know. They had never been through this. They had never seen it. And I got there at around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I sat with my aunt, and I watched her, and they would ask me, okay, what's going on now? What's going on now? And we would hear the Cheyenne Stokes, and we would see her, you know, holding her breath, and we would see the agitation, all the steps. Dying is its own 12-step program. I I find, (laughs) and you can pretty much tick off the boxes, and then once you get to the final, you know, 10, 11, 12, you pretty know you've got about 40 minutes left. And I remember when she finally took her last breath, and they all kind of looked at me. 
And her last words, actually, were when I came in and I said, hello, Aunt Lynn, and she said, hello, sweetie. And that was the last thing that she said. I sat with them. Mm -hmm. I guided them through. And she died at uh, 2.30 in the morning. And I felt incredibly blessed to have been there and to held her hand and to kiss her and to just say, wow, thank you for giving me this gift. Because maybe that's what I'm kind of good at. Because it doesn't scare me. It, right. I actually feel quite peaceful. I don't know why. I just, I just do. Well, we, we hear that a lot, you know, from a lot of people who have gone through, through loss uh, of one person or several people. It gives them, um, a, you know, a sense of peace and a sense of, of being okay with helping to guide others through, through this process. I want to take a break real quick because we have Chad calling in. Chad, are you there? Yeah, this is Sam. Hi, Chad. I'm How safe. are you? It's nice to talk to you in person. Well, my question is, I was going to say, Alicia is right on the 12-step program, and I'm saying that she is a blessing to everyone because she definitely knows, she definitely knows it. I've had a lot of friends, musicians that passed away, and one musician lately passed away, and it's like, how do you, the word is, how do you recover we lose our friends and mentors, but well, I guess we feel a little bit that we lose a bit of ourselves at the same time. Well, I think that's very true, Chad, and I think that how you asked a good question, you know, you you can let go, but how do you move on? I think that I think what we need to do is kind of, you know, uh, really take stock of the things that that person, the loved one that we've lost, have have given to us, and keep those those blessings alive within us and those are i think for me more powerful than the loss that's what i think enjoy reading watching and hearing you on radio or tv whenever i'm able to get to it through a phone or oh thank you chad i really appreciate you calling in thank you so much thank you it was lovely to speak to you uh thank you god bless you both Y'all thank be safe. you you too dear All right, bye-bye. thank bye-bye. you you're welcome. <laughs> well, you know, you brought up an interesting point. You know, I think that that is uh, something we hear all the time from people, right? You know, how do we lose someone and then move forward? You know, people get stuck, and I and I hear that quite a bit from people, that if they get stuck in their grief and, you know, what do they do? And I think one of the things, Alicia, you and I have spoken about um, the opportunity for grief to um, kind of push us to make proactive choices and to step up and say, you know what, I'm, I am not going to live my life as, as a life of sadness and sorrow forever. Uh, you know, That's can right. you talk about that? You've made some very proactive choices in your life. Yeah, I, I, I think certain people, and I, I, I don't know why, but they seem to wear their grief like a badge, you know? Mm-hmm. And, they, and some people, I find, get very comfortable in that grief, and they don't want to turn the page because if they're not feeling that profound sadness and loneliness, then who are they? Um, right. And, and also, if they do move forward, um, then are they um, betraying? the loved one that is gone, you know, I think there's so much conflict, especially 
with people who 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 don't get along you, you know it's like family members or friends you know um that that there's arguing that there's just discord and dysfunction and then that person dies and then you're like well holy crap i didn't get to mend that fence and now i'm stuck with all this feeling and and what do you do and so i think you do have to make proactive choices and gosh i mean I didn't even know anything about this until, like, yesterday. I mean, when I was in my 20s, I just wanted to get, I just wanted to get through the darkness until I just saw a glimmer of light. I just wanted mm-hmm. to hold on, just to hold on until I could get through it and not hurt myself by bumping into stuff in the dark. And whatever mm-hmm. that stuff may be, if it's, you know, alcohol, drugs, you know, bad dating choices, you know, overspending. I mean, I think a lot of people do things to um, to numb themselves and to make the pain go away because I think mm-hmm. feeling the pain is the hardest thing in the world. Who wants to feel that um, on a daily basis? I agree. What did you do to heal your pain? Uh, what did you think that you were doing? Let me put it this way. As you attempted to heal your pain, what did you do? Well, I threw myself into work. So I was on a soap opera, which was, re- and I think my father did this from heaven. Um, I, my father died in January. I was on the soap in April, two weeks after my birthday. And I, they worked me every day for a good 12 to 13 hours. So I didn't have so much time to think about it. Right. I was just immediately thrown into a new environment. Um, and I think I also, um, I moved. I moved out of my, I, I, I wasn't in my dorm room anymore. I wasn't home anymore. I moved into a, a little two-bedroom cottage right around the corner from where my dad grew up so that I could kind oh, of well. coalesce. I, I, I call it my, you know, quarter-century coalescent home. <laughs> and uh, I, um I think I numbed everything until one day, and not many people know this because I haven't shared this, but I was dating a boy who I loved very, very much. And um, I write about it in my book about the boy, and we, we, things kind of went south uh, quickly. And I remember I went up to my doctor on 86th Street and Madison Avenue, and walking down Madison Avenue, I managed to spend $12,000 on my American Express card. And American Express stopped me at, like, the fifth store, and I was like, let me tell you something. I'm going on a spree. Don't stop me. And I remember going to, you know, Bergdorf Goodman and buying a couple of Armani suits and Calvin Klein things. I bought a bag. I bought a shawl that I still have today. And I got home, and I cried for a week because I think I had finally allowed all of the pain, and I think it was the boyfriend was the catalyst for me to finally throw it all up. And once mm-hmm. I was able to just cry for a week going through my, you know, $13,000 of merchandise, I was able to kind of move on. And I, then wow. I was able to take out the journals and look at them. I was able to see a little bit clearer and I was able to move myself from New York to California where I really never thought I would do that. And when I did mm-hmm. that, I came out here, and my husband, my now husband, who was my friend, came out too, and I was clear enough to pick him, and I let it go. I had to let it go. Right. And I still have moments because, my God, every time I look at my children, um, 
you know, uh, every time I look at them, I see my father. And we collect pennies because every time Esme sees a penny, she says it's got a guy on it, and the guy reminds her of her grandfather who she never met. Oh, so, wow. So we collect pennies. And every time we see a penny, we put it in our pocket, and that way we always have grandpa or my father with us. I know it sounds a little silly, but that's what we do. Uh, I love it. I love we it. Have a lot I, of I know a lot of people. Yeah, I do too, actually. <laughs> yeah, I like <laughs> because pennies. Because I have the same. <laughs> I find pennies everywhere. But it's a it's a great thing. In fact, I found them so much that a friend of mine, uh, Allison Parrish, sent me a bank, and it's called Pennies from Heaven. You know yeah, those piggy banks? Uh, yeah. Mine is full. <laughs> I need I need a I need a heaven petty uh, piggy bank. I gotta find that. Yeah, I have like uh-huh. jars of pennies. I have them at, like I like when I wash my pants. Like pennies fall. I'm sure I, I'm ruining my washing machine. <laughs> well, I, I I tell you, we're not alone. I know another person who finds dimes, and I'd be curious. You know, in the future, I would love for for you guys to uh, tweet me at Diane B Gray. And uh, let me know what your thing is. What's your sign? What is it that yeah, you what, find yeah. that you feel is a sign? And what's your Twitter? My Twitter is Alicia, Alicia underscore Coppola. I'd like to know what the sign is, too. I think that would be an interesting yeah. thing, to collect signs of everybody. Yeah, like tweet, tweet us and, and let us know what it is that you find and what you think is your, your sign or your connection you know, to okay. other people. You know, I would love that. So, again, it's Alicia yeah. underscore Coppola. Okie dokie. And I'm going to close the show. I want to read to them, you know, a little bit just from the last uh, part of your foreword for your book because I think it's so true. Um, and it will also be a great segue to our next show. Alicia writes, perhaps if we're really lucky, gracefully gone might allow someone a little peace and some comfort knowing that even though – they are on their own lifeboats. They are in an ocean full of them. And I think that is so beautiful and so touching because, you know, grief is like that. I think when we're in it and we are down in the trenches or in our own lifeboat in this great big ocean, you know, we feel like we are the only ones that are there. And the beautiful thing is that when that sun comes up again, and we really start to reach out and look around, we can see that the ocean is full of these metaphorical lifeboats, and we have some choices to make. And I think a lot of healing grief comes from opening our mouths and saying what we need to say and sharing our hurt, but also to sharing our love as we make choices to transform and and move forward. Uh, I have a couple of guests in mind, but I would love to hear from you. If you can, uh, shoot me a message on Facebook, um, Diane, D-I-A-N-N-E, Gray, G-R-A-Y. My main name is Barrett, so it says Diane Barrett or Diane Gray, or you can also uh, tweet me at Diane B. Gray. Um, Let me know who you'd like for me to have on the show. Who would you like for me to, um, you know, bring in, who would you like to hear about, what kind of topics would you like to hear. And remember, too, that you can listen to this. It'll pop up on the web, uh, hopefully straight away. It's on funeralradio.com backslash transformed. We wish you all just a beautiful Easter week ahead. Um, It's a very special holiday regardless of your 
religious affiliation. It's a special time. And most important, don't let grief hold you back from living the life that you have now. There are people around you that love you. There are friends that truly care about you. Um, I think sometimes it's hard for all of us to remember to just get out of bed the next day through our grief. But just remember that um, that there are a lot of people that care. Sometimes they just don't know what to say. So reach your hand out, and I promise you that almost always somebody will be right there immediately to reach back at you. Thanks again for your time tonight. We wish you a lovely evening and a fabulous rest of your week. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us.